Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. I'm Emran Hughes, editor of Insurance Post, and today I'm joined by LexisNexis Risk Solutions Karjal Vakas, Clear Group's Neil Grimes, Claims Consortium Group's Gary Slater, and Woodgate and Clark Sarah Zirkin to talk about how to spot a fraudulent insurance claim. Today on the Insurance Post podcast, I'm pleased to have with me Karjal Vakas, Senior Vertical Manager for Claims for the UK and Ireland at LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Neil Grimes, Claims Director of Clear Group, Gary Slater, Group Director of Investigations for Claims Consortium Group, and Sarah Durkin, Head of Counterford at Woodgate and Clark. These claims experts will share their expertise on how to spot a fraudulent insurance claim. Hi, Carjal, Neil, Gary, and Sarah. Welcome to the Insurance Post podcast. Hi, Hi Emma. Hi, Emma. So, the City of London Police has reported a surge in opportunistic fraud in the midst of this cost of living crisis. Neil, what type of insurance fraud are you finding most common at the moment? Uh, Motor is always been the most common uh, form of uh, fraud. In the old days, it used to be personal injury claims were exaggerated, but because of the portal now, there's a lot less of the smaller injury claims going in, so it's moved more into the non-injury side um, for fraud for high network vehicles. Uh, is where we normally see it. Property has gone up as well, where you get like high good net worth goods that you would have being dropped, stolen when they haven't been. Jewellery is a common one now as well, high net worth jewellery going missing, where then you find it on sale on, on eBay. But can I just say that opportunistic fraud has always been there. Mm. I think the cost of living, will it see an increase? I, I think it'll maybe a small amount, because you won't get the real data until next year of whether there was during 2023. Gary, are you seeing similar trends? Um, very much so, especially on the lines that already mentioned by Neil. But um, from my point of view, because of the types of business that we deal with um, at Claims Consortium Group, I'm seeing a lot more opportunistic fraud than I would have expected to see as early on in the cost of living crisis. It started a little bit towards the end of COVID because of I think of the um, gas and electric started to go up and I think we started to see exaggeration which is probably the first thing we would normally see and since then it started to evolve into something a little bit more organised. Sarah is that sorts of trends that you're seeing? Yes yeah, certainly um, obviously we're getting Clark predominantly from the commercial uh, and high net worth client uh, market uh, base and certainly what we're starting to see is as Gary's just said an increase in exaggerations on what would generally be genuine claims such as uh, thefts uh, accidental damage Um, and what we're finding is that people are maximizing the opportunity uh, to increase what they've actually said has been stolen when in fact that might not well be the case Um, so yeah we're we're noticing that across the board and I noticed that you know the, the recent IFB publication they were saying that it's gone up from one in five to one in four people. Young people now are more tempted uh, to commit opportunistic fraud. Um, and, and just re- going on Neil's point there, you know, it has always been there. I think, as always, when you start focusing on something, you start seeing it as well. So um, the hardest thing is obviously the people more likely to commit it are people who've never committed a fraud before and just finding the the struggle with the financial pressures are just deciding that they're going to commit fraud on a one-off basis and hence it's actually quite difficult to identify those fraudsters because of that. Mm, Kajal, are you seeing similar trends and as Sarah touched on you know a lot more people who would never have committed fraud before doing yes. it? Yes, absolutely, Um, Emma, we are seeing similar things. Um, In fact, the ABI also reported that although the volume of claims fraud did fall significantly in 2022, the total value of claims fraud only fell by 4%, um, with 
opportunistic fraud actually increasing by 2%. The average fraud has now increased to um, a record of £15,000 per event, and that's up 20% in comparison to 2021. This in part reflects the rise in the value of property fraud, which has risen up to £134 million. Um, And that's simply down to higher inflation costs. Um, We're seeing examples of people claiming for the same loss, a genuine loss, but from multiple insurers. Like there was a case, I think, of a a gentleman claiming twice for a broken TV from two insurance companies. Um, And and there's things like, I guess, pre-existing or pre-claimed um, fraud happening across multiple sort of insurers and books of business, etc. Mm. Gary, what what do your claims teams see in terms of t- you know typical red flag indicators for an insurance fraud case? Okay, um, there's quite a lot of them, but the one I think is the, the the biggest red flag for me is when people are un- unreasonable from the very very beginning, um, saying they're going to complain before you've even asked for their name or tried to uh, data protection, ask questions, things like that. Um, then it follows the same pattern throughout the whole life cycle of the claim, knowing that we're FCA registered or have to follow the, the same regs, so we all have to jump through the same hoops to make sure that we do the right thing for the customer. But the problem is, of course, we have to do the same thing for that customer that's potentially fraudulent than the one that isn't fraudulent at all, so it takes up more time. And then I think a lot of insurers are afraid of complaints, mm-hmm. and as a result, then their judgment gets a little bit clouded. Um, Neil, what do you see as red flag indicators? Oh, there are so many for the different classes of business that you have. Standout ones would be deliberate damage, um, setting up of policies and claiming very, very quickly. As Gary said, people who argue and protest and make demands right from the start, usually red flag for us as well automatically. Witnesses, we look at that. The time of the day that the accident happened, late at night, not many people around. Repeat performance, I say about people who've used multiple insurers, so you look to see how they had multiple claims to these different insurers. The list is literally the length of your arm, uh, but we don't want to give away too much of what we actually indicate because that might just help people mm-hmm. how to make fraudulent claims. Carl, any red flag indicators that um, Gary and Neil haven't pointed out for our audience? Something I've seen in my own experience is where specific organisations are involved in a claim when you have a specific credit hire firm involved and that immediately creates a trigger Um, low velocity impacts causing injury I remember having a claim once of it was literally a bumper to bumper kiss while someone was parking and the gentleman in the car was severely injured following that very minor incident Um, phantom passengers uh, where you have injuries where like the car is full five people injured per vehicle um, etc Something we did at LexisNexis actually is we we ran a um, POC with a client where we took about 150,000 first party records. And this is post, these are first party. So obviously they've done the policy checks before they onboarded them. And we ran a check of their email addresses to see if we could find any past links to fraud from email. And we found 1% of those records had a high risk score, which came in around the six, which basically means they had been seen as being fraudulent previously. Um, And that's following all the policy onboarding checks that take place anyway. And at point of claim, they were found to to have 1% risk there. So email address is a great indicator of of, um, potential risk of fraud. That can also help us understand where um, somebody might have, there might be an account takeover, a synthetic identity, a fraud ring taking place, 
um, and also historic links to, sorry, historic claims. Um, so as Neil mentioned, when you see someone's had multiple historic claims, but sometimes you can only see across their motorbooker business or a homebooker business. Um, what we're seeing at LexisNexis is a cross search helps us identify behavioral patterns of people claiming across home and motor both. Mm. Sarah, is, is that kind of cross spotting cross patterns a red flag indicate kind of one of the red flag indicators that you see in your business yeah absolutely i mean uh, as i say we're getting clark obviously we're very conscious that we're considering fraud throughout the life cycle of a claim and that fraud can happen at any time so those indicators while we encourage adjusters to um, complete them after they've been a site visit we also actively encourage that they are reviewed regularly throughout because it may well be that you've got a claim on the face of it, it seems genuine and it's actually proceeding to settlement and it's in the final stages where they then produce a fraudulent document which has exaggerated costs that suddenly the whole thing is turned on its head and you're looking at starting an investigation when ostensibly the, 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 it's already been completed. So we're, we've got that, we've got an in-house uh, system that we use to, uh, you know, investigation system that manages uh, that their claims through that life cycle um, and we also have dynamic sort of fraud indicators so we look at policy the specific indicators relating to policy considerations underwriting and obviously the actual peril as Neil indicated there's so many different types of potential indicators um, one of the, the other key things we're, we're obviously keen to be mindful of as well when we're doing when we, we're assessing this is that just because somebody demonstrates a particular form of behavior which obviously all of us here have experienced You've also got to be very mindful that there's a lot of vulnerable customers out there as well. So you've got to make sure that you separate that behaviour from is it somebody that's actually uh, got the potential to commit fraud or is it somebody that's actually got some some vulnerability that, you know, we need to be aware of and, and handle appropriately. So, you know, we keep we go in, we keep an open mind and we, we you know, we judge each each claim and each person, each policyholder on, you know, as, as they're presented to us, which is how my team is sort of with highly skilled and developed to, to deal with, so... Which leads us nicely on to, I mean, the kind of steps that insurers are taking today to investigate a potentially fraudulent claim. Neil, what does your organisation do, you know, balancing the the difficulty of, you know, it could be a customer in vulnerable circumstances, but equally it could be just someone who's, you know... Well, as Gary said at the start, we all come from a different part of the industry. Mm. So we come from, I come from the broking side. So we want to work with our insurer partners and we like to see that they have very good fraud controls in place because that also gives confidence to your clients when you're placing business. I mean, no fraud claim starts in the fraud team. It starts with the general claims teams. So by having the good triggers in place and knowledge, the gut instinct always, I think for me, it's always been that way, it'll move into the fraud team where necessary. And they will then take up for the investigation side everything from looking at the invoices to the claims history to the individuals. They're more than likely to interview uh, the individual themselves. And that could be when you're under that sort of pressure. Uh, I think they generate a lot of information when they go down those lines. Gary, what approach do you see insurers taking to investigate potentially fraudulent claims? As Neil said, it does vary. But um, what I have noticed more recently is that as we go into the, um, the advent of more AI, more technology, mm. um, pushing things towards um, potential fraud practitioners like ourselves, there's a lot of things where, as you've already pointed out, it could be for a different reason. Um, so as a result, we have to wade through those and make sure we're looking at the right claims. 
Uh, a, a good example is that at Claims Consortium Group, we we, start, we we built a brand new system, which we thought was fantastic, did all the other things and the, built all the flags into it. But then all of a sudden, the insurance companies started pushing other things through to us at a time where I don't think previously a lot of us think there's an awful lot of fraud, which was around surge, which was the escape of war surge last year. And one of the things I was very keen to do was work really closely with the eyes on, which I think Neil's already alluded to, the adjusters and the surveyors, and try and make sure that they were fully aware of the, the indicators just as much as claims handler would be. And therefore, we were looking at far more claims than I probably ever have done in a, a surge, which is not necessarily a good thing. But at the same time, um, we found a, a, an awful lot more fraud, um, opportunistic and staged, believe it or not, even on wet perils. And Sarah, do you see a lot more of that joined up approach? So it's not just the claims handling teams, it's connecting with the loss adjusters, etc., to really investigate what's, what's Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the devil is in the detail when, we, when we're looking at the in, an investigation. Um, the adjusters are generally the first pairs of eyes and ears on the ground. We, they're, they're a very good source of, of evidence-gathering, information-gathering, um, as we quite often find that by the time an investigator gets appointed on a claim, the, the barriers sometimes go up, and actually it's that, the, that initial... Uh, evidence, securing and preserving evidence that the adjusters does at the, f at the outset is obviously becomes quite critical as we go down the line. Um, but uh, yeah, equally obviously, we're we, the, the main thing for us really is identifying, as, as Neil's pointed out, you know, the claims, all of the claims starting the claims process is identifying those claims early on that are the honest customers that should just go through the general claims process obviously with bearing in mind treating customers fairly and the consumer duty that's just come in in terms of making sure that that doesn't impact that customer journey as we go forward but equally making sure that we identify at an early and appropriate stage when it needs to be, be diverted into the fraud uh, uh, investigation arena and then obviously we, we deal with that appropriately um, and we obviously uh, advise and guide our clients as to the most appropriate lines of inquiry as to how we can assist and validate their uh, claims uh, to the best so that we get the best outcomes for them best broad outcomes if that's how it ends up um, and as I say we're getting Clark at the moment we've got a really good highly skilled team hand-picked team that we've that we've developed over the last couple of years um, and more recently we've we've got somebody that uh, is trained in document and forensic and uh, examination and, and um, metadata behind the photographs and we've been having some really good results in relation to that particularly as I referenced earlier on getting towards the end of, you know, settlement of a claim and, and a, a document's presented that's of concern. So we, we've we've had a number of those, which, are, yet again, be, feeds into the exaggerated loss and the opportunistic fraud that we're all seeing in the industry. I mean, we've, we've and Gary talked about AI. Um, we've also said, what, what new innovative steps are insurers taking to crack down on fraud? So, um, as I mentioned, we've um, started to see a desire to be able to cross-search across multiple books of business, um, and we're finding that that helps generate a lot of insight, not only someone's behaviour across, let's say, home and motor, but also the history of the asset itself. So, if we can understand the history, the, the claiming history of an individual, and then the claiming history of that asset, such as that home, um, and something we like to say is, if these walls could talk, so prior to that claimant even living there, if there was a spate of escape of water incidents from the property that helps us quickly determine this is unlikely to be fraudulent because that property's clearly got a problem with it um, even with a vehicle if we can see that this vehicle has had a history of claims behind it that feels a bit more fraudulent because it's unlikely that same car is going to have a number of accidents um, so maybe it's being passed through a fraud group etc 
Another interesting data set we're seeing that um, insurers are quite keen on is understanding the safety features in the vehicle. Where cars are becoming safer and safer, and that should reduce the number of collisions on the road. And we are seeing a reduction in collisions on road. Um, However, if a vehicle is fitted with safety features, that should stop a certain type of collision taking place, but then that collision has actually happened. That should be a trigger in trying to understand, well, why did that collision take place? Is it because the individual's overridden the safety feature, or is this actually a staged accident? Um, We're also seeing a move towards wanting to explore, um, let's say, non-typical data sets to be able to determine fraud or actually investigate fraud as well. Um, So generally, the types of um, enrichment that may happen during the policy stage is now potentially a a opportunity for insurers to use at the claim stage. Um, And also another thing we're seeing is rechecking details. So generally what will happen is enrichment will take place when they onboard, potentially at renewal, potentially if there's an MTA. Um, But then during the life of a claim, and claims can sometimes last, you know, months, even a year, maybe years, etc. Um, but rechecking and re-enriching that um, that search can actually come out with different results as well. Um, so just kind of keeping on top of that enrichment. And although there may not be a fraud flag now, two months later, actually that person now feels riskier than they did before. Mm. I mean, there's Ian. Um, sorry, as, as Neil touched on the you know, to give policyholders confidence that insurance companies are taking this seriously and therefore um, making premiums affordable requires convictions in courts of these fraudsters. Sarah, what does it take to achieve that conviction in court? <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose... Or what doesn't it take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, the the, balance, the, the burden of proof to, to get something to a court is obviously beyond is the, um, beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, so it's obviously quite a high a high bar to prove evidentially. Um, and also, the, the one thing that we obviously have to deal with and advise and guide our clients on is the actual appetite of the insurer to actually want to take to take that uh, claim to court and that fraud to court. Um, Obviously, we know there's the IFED are a specific department that's been set up within the City of London Police to deal with insurance fraud. But as with all police resources, they're stretched. Uh, they can only handle, you know, so many claims. And even if, if we wanted to refer, insurers wanted to refer every single claim to them, it's extremely, you know, they can they, they, they just haven't got the, the, the capacity to deal with it. And they're obviously the appropriate department to, to deal with that. So, so we do advise... Um, you know, advise and guide our clients in relation to how best to approach that and the pros and cons of it. But um, what I've I've been pleased to see is that the sentencing guidelines are now starting to uh, reflect the seriousness of fraud with all the government initiatives that there have been in in fraud in the the broader sense. And that's now reflected much more in stiffer sentencing, which I think, you know, a few more examples of that will give give our fraudsters some uh, pause for thought when they're actually thinking about whether to commit fraud, short-term pain for for long-term gain, potentially with a criminal conviction and and, and, go, and not being maintained on the IFR register, you know, so they're they're, no, they're recorded as a as a fraudster um, and unable to get insurance. So, you know, there's a whole there's a whole wealth of uh, possibilities there, really. Neil, would you agree? It's a lot of effort, but it's essential for you as a broker to kind of give you know policyholders that confidence. Absolutely, what Sarah says is correct. I think historically we've all been doing this a long time. Insurers didn't like having anything prosecuted in court because it gave bad PR to the company about I've just been susceptible to fraud. But with premiums increasing because of fraud, the policyholders want insurers to be prosecuting people and making fraud, so now it is the thing to do. The collaboration 
is key. It is the willingness of the various parties to be involved. They want to the prosecutions. There is an appetite to prosecute the smaller ones because it should be a deterrent to others not to do it. Uh, a good friend of mine that works in the in the industry said to me that um, the consequences of opportunistic or any fraud at all, it just fars outweigh any short-term um, financial gain that you're going to get. You're going to be uninsurable and it could affect even your employment side of things. It's it's a very risky area to go down and what most of the policyholders of the public don't realise is that what the insurers actually, what gets advertised, they have no idea the 99% behind of all the other ones that are done behind the scenes. The the fraud teams are very, very good at what they do, and there'd be an awful lot more if it wasn't, if they weren't there. So between the fraud teams, IFB, IFED, all working together as one unit, um, the amount of fraud has dropped down dramatically. And as Kajal said at the start about it's gone down, but that's what we would expect with all those collaborations that are happening in the industry. Gary, would you agree it takes a lot, but it's essential work because people's perceptions of these convictions have changed that it's it's insurance companies providing value for money i think as time's gone on and i agree with everything that's been said thus far it's evident that there is an appetite for for people to see people being punished for something they know they've done wrong there's this horrible gap in between where you're not quite sure as to whether they're a fraudster or whether they are and so therefore whenever we are dealing with a potential fraud we would gain the information we would as if it was going to be a potential fraud at the end of it so we get it at the, at the highest level we possibly can so that if it does go to IFED potentially and the insurance company decide no we are going to prosecute this one it's the right thing to do um, they then don't have such a difficult job to then convert it to a conviction as Sarah's already said um, they are very very busy um, the, the, the police and IFED are massively resource stretched and, and as a result we often find frustratingly that cases that we, we think are the right cases or sorry we think the insurers particularly think the right cases to be prosecuted they're not um, but at the same time that doesn't mean as, as Neil's already said is that we're all doing this because we want to make sure that honest customers don't pay for dishonest customers and that's what it, that's what we all do this for really Kajal, would you agree that you know you've got to have a wealth of evidence but it's also got to be the right case to secure that conviction completely and um, LexisNexis risk solutions is actually very committed to that so the data we supply will always be of high quality um, and we'll always try to really understand the insurer's use case before we supply that data to ensure that not only are they getting high quality data but they're getting the right data for the right use case because as all three of um, my my sort of panellists have mentioned um, if you take it to court but your case isn't strong enough then you've wasted a whole lot of effort um, so to ensure you're getting the right data to support the right use case which is compliant it's legitimate it's fair um, and it's not the detriment of the end consumer um, is going to be really key and important. But Kajal, is it also a decision being made by the provider in terms of what's going to generate interest among headlines so for example the number of cases we um, see where it's been quite blatant for where people have been posting on social media that they've that well while their claims said that they were unable to do anything their social media shows a very different story so is, is it for insurers increasingly having to think carefully about what kind of headlines and news coverage it will generate if they proceed to course 
With social media, it's a little bit ethically grey because social media is not an accurate sense of what's actually happening. A lot of people make up what their lives really look like on social media. So if I've got a claimant who's claiming injury and they're saying they're unwell, but then they're posting content on social media that looks contrary, yes, it should make me suspicious, but I can't use that as an accurate source to actually um, invalidate the claim, for example, because they could just be making a lot of that up. So I need a lot more, um, I guess, accurate evidence to be able to come to those conclusions and decisions. And if that was to reach a headline, like ex-claimant's claim was um, invalidated because it looked like on social media that they'd gone on holiday when they said they were actually too injured to be able to get out of bed, but they could then prove otherwise, that would be a sensationalist headline and it would be poor reputational damage. Um, So using the right data to be able to come to the right conclusions to ensure that's fair to the consumer as well is is really key. Sarah, do you, is, there, is there a bit of thinking among the insurers in terms of the right cases that would need to proceed to court to send out a message to other people considering submitting similar fraudulent claims? Absolutely. I mean, it's always been traditional in terms of criminal prosecutions as to whether it's in the public interest as well, you know, across the board in all criminal uh, offences. Uh, and I think because the app... Interestingly, certainly in a couple of cases I've had recently, we've, there's been an increase in whistleblowing and people have this moral sense that, that everybody is feeling the pinch and therefore why should I pay? And I think that is becoming more and more prevalent to some people. So, you know, we, we've all mentioned, you know, we want we want to be seen to be doing the right thing for our honest customers. You know, it's a 5% increase on premium on average for all of us that we pay. And, uh, and while the perception is that, you know, fraud is a crime, it, you know, it's not a crime that costs anybody or doesn't hurt anybody, it does, you know. And I say I think a lot more people are just starting to think enough's enough. Uh, I'm not tolerating this. If, I, if I'm having to pull my belt in... Uh, why, why should others get away with, with, with fraudulent behaviour? And I think that's where uh, we, we have to be very careful about which cases we advise and guide uh, our clients on as to which, which ones they're more likely to get the best success um, mm-hmm. out of. Um, and equally, just you know, Gary's other point there, you know, we, we have to make sure we've got the sufficient evidence because it is absolutely critical that we, when we get to court that we've got all we've dotted all the i's and crossed all the t's and the evidence is going to be watertight because that's where most criminal cases fail is in the procedural and the gathering of evidence and and and, and, and the audit trail of that so you know we make sure in our team that we 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 do that and we've got um highly skilled train of investigators we've got over 200 years experience between us so you know we have that working knowledge uh, of how to 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 gather evidence and and make sure that it's going to stand up uh, to uh, challenge in court and send out a message to others who may be considering submitting a fraudulent claim (laughs) that brings us to the end of this episode of the insurance post podcast i'd like to thank Karjal, neil gary and sarah for joining us and sharing their insight on insurance fraud As always, also thanks to you for listening to the Insurance Post podcast. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Insurance Post and by following us on Facebook, LinkedIn and X. Make sure you come back next week for a discussion on making business interruption insurance fit for post-pandemic purpose. Until then, this is Emran Hughes signing off. The Insurance Post podcast is a product of InfoPro Digital.